Hi there, I'm Vernon Mann. If you've listened to previous editions, you'll have joined me in my worldwide travels, covering wars and revolutions, royal tours, you name it, as a producer, foreign editor and correspondent for UK TV News. Today I'm taking you to exotic Somerset, where I'm presently the correspondent covering Wales and the West Country, based near Bristol. I'm travelling constantly around the stunning countryside, armed with Johansson's Good Country Hotel Guide, of course. No travel lodges for me. We're covering stuff like Dartmoor prison riots, poll tax riots, remember them? And lots of quirky country stories. It's great fun. I have a team of two cameramen and a tape editor, and I use a company helicopter all the time. If producers want a story in Cornwall for the lunchtime news, the helicopter's the only option. A cameraman is permanently assigned to it and we can transmit video as well, even go live into the news, which I do flying over disastrous floods on the Somerset levels, for example. Coming back from a story in Wales once, we come within a whisker of crashing into an Air Force Hercules, being buzzed by fighter planes in an exercise. We have to do a steep climb quickly. I become a familiar figure in Bristol Airport's VIP departure lounge. I grow very attached to my chopper, I think my record of taking it on its longest flight still stands even now. We flew it to France on a sheep story. We do a lot of sheep stories. Too dark and cloudy to fly back to Bristol, so we stay the night in Paris. Instead of steak and chips and a pint with my wife at the Carpenter's Arms, it's fruit de mer and a glass of Kia Royale at Brasserie Lorraine. My wife and I decide to settle in the southwest of England and after spending a couple of years renting, at the company's expense, a wing in a 14th century mansion with tennis courts and a lake, we decide to buy a tumble-down 17th century farmhouse in the Mendips. It's the third wreck we've bought over the years, we know how to pick them, and I can vouch for the old saying about rolling stones gathering no moss. The Somerset pile is too far gone to live in, the roof has to come off for starters, so we find an old caravan and get it towed into the field next to the house and move in. That's me, my wife, our son who's five, our newly adopted three-and-a-half-year-old boy, our bearded collie and three cats. It's all a bit of an adventure, though the adopted one might well be wondering what he's got himself into. One evening we light a fire and sit around barbecuing sausages and chops. A police Land Rover parks up by our five-bar gate and a helmeted PC comes to check us out. I think some of the villagers worry we might be gypsies or hippies. Horrors! I offer him a glass of wine. I'm on duty, I'm afraid, he says, but sits down and we have a pleasant chat. Half an hour later, he looks at his watch and removes his helmet. I'm off duty now, he says, with a smile and a wink. We finish the bottle and open another and we have a good old red wine session. He tells me that anyone driving around these lanes after nine o'clock at night is almost certainly over the limit and advises me to be aware of that, especially if I've had one or two myself. Then he empties his glass and drives slowly away. If you're a policeman, you can do that after a drink. All very lovely, but winter comes and the house still isn't fit for humans. It's cold, it rains a lot, the caravan is damp, there's green mould on my suit, and as I gingerly walk a plank across a builder's trench, mud splashes onto my trousers. My morning chat with the builder is interrupted by my mobile. It's the foreign editor from London, an old mate, an Australian. We small talk for a minute or two, but I sense he's a little uneasy. Then he comes out with it. We want you to go to Bosnia, he says tentatively, as if he's expecting a rejection. 
The Bosnian war broke out a year ago after the disintegration of Yugoslavia. It's one of the bloodiest and most brutal conflicts of modern times, with ethnic cleansing, massacres, the lot. Great, I hear myself saying without hesitation. When do I go? The flight to split in Croatia is lunchtime the next day. They say that I send cash and a flak jacket and helmet to the airport. OK, fine. This'll be my first time with a flak jacket. Not my first conflict, though. I once abandoned my wife and child on a canal boat holiday to go to China after the Tiananmen Square massacre. That's in episode 13. Now I'm leaving her and my two small boys to go off to a war. Avril, as always, is OK about my imminent departure, bless her. If I were her, I'd be seething. Maybe she is. She hides it well. Do I feel guilty? Yes, I do, but also excited at the adventure ahead, back on a real story again. Nothing against sheep, you understand, or the West Country. I admit, though, that I'm a little apprehensive. There's some very nasty stuff going on in Bosnia. Since the start of the war in 92, we've been covering it constantly, and crews are rotated every two or three weeks. My crew's already in Croatia, in Split. I'm travelling with a tape editor, a master of his trade, and terrific company. I've worked with him all over the world. Teamed up with him, my anxiety fades. It's going to be a good trip. We get to Split, where the cameraman and sound man, few women in those jobs then, report that they're ready to go early the next day. We have a lively last supper. There won't be many restaurants where we're going. I have pasta in squid ink. Delicious, but debilitating. I have a very uncomfortable night. We have an armoured Land Rover. Press, painted on the roof and sides, in big white letters, just so they'll know who they're shooting at. I think it came from Northern Ireland, where it was used during the Troubles. We also have a small white larder with nothing painted on it. We debate who rides in what. The crew argue they need to be in the Land Rover because that's where their kit is and they'll need to film whatever might happen along the way. They win the argument. You can't fit a TV camera and sound gear in a larder anyway. But it does have space at the back, which we pack with bread, cheese, salamis, beer and a case of local red wine. We got tea bags and coffee from the UK. We're going from Split to Kasiliak, a Croatian-held town, where they're trying to get rid of the Bosnian Serbs, who are a few hills and a couple of dozen miles away, trying to get rid of the Muslims. I'm trying to keep it simple. Both sides are behaving badly, particularly the Serbs. The Srebrenica massacre is only a couple of months away. 8,000 Muslim men and boys will die. The British Army have a small base in Kasiliak as part of a UN peace enforcement operation commanded by Colonel Bob Stewart, now an MP, which is why we've rented a flat there. We leave Split just after dawn in a mini, unorganised convoy with the BBC and a couple of vehicles carrying a reporter from the Times and Fleet Street staff photographers and a number of freelance snappers, as we call them. We soon get separated. The armoured vehicles can't go very fast, nor can the larder, to be fair. We're here because there are reports that the Serbs are cleansing the predominantly Muslim area around Srebrenica, cutting off food supplies, turfing people out of their homes. This is supposed to be a United Nations safe haven, monitored by Dutch troops. Starving refugees who've survived ambushes, landmines and God knows what else are trickling into Tuzla a couple of hundred clicks away with stories of absolute horror. Kasiliak is about 230 kilometres from Split, Nowadays you can get there in two and a half hours or less. It takes us two days. We hit the snow an hour into the drive. Our Land Rover's leading the convoy. 
The crew have driven this route a couple of times so know when to deviate off the main road to avoid troublesome roadblocks and worse. The track we're on right now is frozen compacted snow with icy tyre grooves three to four inches deep. We slot the larder into the tracks as you would a Scalectrix. We stop for a break on the outskirts of a village. The house is burned, no sign of life or livestock. We heat bread and cheese, washed down with coffee, heated on a portable gas cooker. No red wine, please note. It's just us and the BBC now, the others must be way ahead. The Beeb have two armoured Land Rovers. Halfway up a steepish hill in the snow, one of them slides slowly down an embankment. No one's hurt, but it's not a place to safely hang about. We, of course, offer help, but there's not a lot we can do. We'll sort it, thanks, said Martin Bell, the veteran BBC reporter, a true gentleman, my competitor. So we drive on through the snow, approaching an area where the Serbs are said to be active. The cameraman's getting twitchy. We can't go that way, he insists. They were shelling that road last time I was here. So we divert off the main road and divert again, ten miles on, at his insistence. We'll never bloody get there at this rate, I say grumpily. It's getting on towards dusk. It's too dangerous to drive in the dark. The road is bad and we don't want to bump into any militia patrols, thank you very much, from any side. We'll have to keep in the cars if we have to. Approaching another seemingly empty town, we spot a glimmer of light coming from the ground floor of a building up ahead. Parked up outside are the Philly Street boys' cars. They found a bloody hotel. Closed and abandoned, maybe, but a hotel nevertheless, hopefully with beds. God knows how they got in, I didn't ask. They open the door and usher us into the lobby, where they're huddling around their camping cookers and portable lights. Some of them have torches strapped to their heads like coal miners used to do. Been meaning to get one of those. The hotel is completely closed. No electricity, no staff. It was open last year, says one of the lads who spent the night here at the beginning of the war. The boys tell us they found racks full of wine and spirits there for the taking, but the bottles are frozen solid, the glass cracked. We find some empty bedrooms on the first floor. They're freezing by the light of my torch, not attached to my head. I discover everything is frozen. Icicles hang from a once dripping tap and from the shower hose. A block of lice is at the bottom of the loo. The sheets on the bed are stiff with frost and ruffled. I reckon transitioning militiamen have camped out here. Still, a bed is a bed and I do have a sleeping bag. Downstairs they're cooking up eggs and baked beans and enjoying a drink and other things. We join in, cracking open a couple of our bottles of red. I don't bother with the other things, although the crew have a joint or two and possibly other other things. Why not? I have vices, yes. I drink possibly too much because I enjoy it. I don't rely on it to get through my day, though. Are you sure? I hear you say. I can't drink at all if I'm likely to be on the telly or have to record a piece to camera. I'm given a tip once from a veteran correspondent in my early reporting days. If you have to do a voiceover in the evening, he says, and you're slurring a bit, lean forwards towards the microphone and rest your chin in your cupped hands. It'll stop things wobbling about. It works, believe me, but obviously you can't stand in front of a camera like that. The boys downstairs are seasoned journalists and photographers. One is Bill Frost, a senior reporter for The Times. He's a really interesting guy, funny too. We enjoy great nights swapping stories of journalistic adventures around the world. 
Bill Frost was out here just after it all kicked off and had some sobering tales of some of the early savagery unleashed by the breakup of Yugoslavia. Five years after this Bosnian jollification, he dies alone in his London flat, an aneurysm, a blood clot, reaching his heart. He was 48. His sister reveals he was a big cocaine user and heavy drinker, but she wasn't aware just how hooked he'd got. She said he told her that while in Bosnia, he used to self-medicate each morning with a tumbler of Slivovitz, a fiery local alcoholic spirit. This is what she said just after his death. What he'd seen in Bosnia had convinced him, perhaps, that life is unredeemingly horrible. News crews get to experience many horrible things, as many if not more perhaps than those in the military. Conventional wars, nasty unconventional civil wars, barbaric massacres, bloody uprisings, journalists, cameramen and photographers are always there. Post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD is only officially recognised as a new diagnosis by the US in 1980, but its symptoms are engraved in a Mesopotamian stone tablet 3,000 years ago. They've been calling it shell shock, nerves, combat fatigue. In 1991, it was Gulf War syndrome. I wonder how many frontline newspeople today may have it in one form or another. As mentioned in a previous story back from Afghanistan once, it was months before I stopped slightly cringing every time a plane passed overhead, memories triggered of Russian bombers. It's not as if the company doesn't care about its frontline people. You get shot, they'll move heaven, earth and hell to help you. And more than a few senior managers have been treated to a spell at the Priory Drying Out Clinic. Mental health, though, is a different ballgame. When I get back from, say, Lebanon or indeed this trip, there's no debrief, no check on where my head is at. If you had a successful assignment, it's a large gin with the editor and a short chat and that's it. Have a couple of days off, Vernon. Take your wife out for a decent dinner and invoice it to me. Well done. If you had a bad trip, clobbered by the opposition, it's just a couple of days off with no gin or free dinner. Maybe Bill Frost was suffering PTSD. We'll never know. John Steele, a cameraman I worked with in America and Asia, gets hooked on wars and films untold horrible things in Africa, Russia, Bosnia and elsewhere. If it's a nasty conflict, he's on it and he wins numerous awards for his coverage. Then he has an emotional meltdown, a complete breakdown, and is eventually diagnosed with severe PTSD. He writes a book called War Junkie, as therapy, he says, and is now a successful novelist. I'm very pleased for him. I'm sent on a battlefield training course just before this assignment. We crawl through a muddy wood as someone sets off smoky fake bombs all around us. There's gunfire all around us too. Only blanks, thank goodness. I'm ambushed by an instructor pretending to be a terrorist. I try to kick the gun out of his hand. Exactly what we've been taught not to do. He shoots me dead. Did that prepare me for Bosnia? Don't think so. In the hotel, we decide to call it a night when one of the travel gas canisters gives up the ghost. We have to be up at Sparrows tomorrow and drive on towards the war. We're already in it, really, as witnessed by the empty villages. I trudge up to my freezing bedroom and get into my sleeping bag with all my clothes on, shivering myself to sleep. A cup of tea on the camp stove to warm us in the morning and we're off again, hoping to reach Kassiliak by mid-afternoon. Colleagues before us have rented a flat there, a basic place above a shop owned, I think, by the family of our local fixer-interpreter, whose name I have forgotten. 
Let's call him Basil. Oh, all right then, Vlad. I gather we pay Vlad quite a bit of loot for the flat and for his services too. He's apparently been paid in advance, so I don't need to get involved in the financial details. Nor do I need to pay for petrol. It's all been sorted, says the cameraman, shoving a receipt into his wallet. I'd equip myself with half a dozen cartons of cigarettes in split. They smooth the way through roadblocks, of which suddenly there are quite a few, mostly manned by heavily armed young men, late teens, early twenties, mostly obnoxious and half out of their brains on slivovits. This lot are Croats. We set out for Tuzla, a Muslim town and a magnet for the refugees, a five or six hour drive in icy, snowy conditions, with a more than fair chance of encountering Serbian troops. Meanwhile, I'm getting to like my flak jacket. Sure, it's heavy, but it's surprisingly comfortable and great as a back brace in a larder. Along the way, we bump into, not literally, thank goodness, a couple of British Army warrior armoured fighting vehicles, tanks to you, and an armoured personnel carrier from the 1st Battalion Cheshire Regiment, part of a UK force of 2,400 troops flown in last October. They're part of Operation Grapple, which brings to mind a drunken pub brawl, but is aimed at escorting UN humanitarian aid convoys through so-called UN safe havens, regarded by Serbs as a joke, and historically not wonderfully helpful for the refugees either. Colonel Bob is an affable, reasonable man and gives us a brief roadside interview about the challenges he faces. So on to Tuzla, where you can feel the gloom in your water. It's not that we've experienced any fighting or witnessed anything dreadful. It's just the knowledge, the feeling that something horrible is going on in the hills, out of sight, and that we, and all the other journalists so far, have failed to expose it. One reporter sets off on his own with a small camera, but comes back a couple of days later, exhausted and frustrated, if not a little relieved at his own survival. Serbian roadblocks every step of the way, he reports. Serbian camps in the woods, patrolling troops who just can't squeeze through. All we can do right now, short of a suicide mission, is to track down people in Tuzla who've managed to find their way out and record their stories for posterity. We set up our editing kit in the Tuzla Hotel, a seedy two-star establishment where everyone is trying their best but failing to succeed. Still, it has heating and the sheets have been changed since the last person slept in my bed. I'm not complaining. I discover months later there's a casino next to the hotel. I wish I'd known. You might find this next bit a little disturbing, but bear in mind it's a news game and we look at life from a different perspective than most people. The foreign editor calls from London and says, Get me a skinny, pal, and you've got the lead story tonight. What he means is find some starving refugees. That's my task for the day, then. The cameraman, meanwhile, is having a screaming row on the telephone with the London assignments desk. The camera's bollocks, he shouts. The lens is screwed. He's really shouting. Normally, he's quite calm. Something is not right. Regardless of the camera problem, which anyway now seems to have been sorted, we drive to the hospital, where we hear some refugees have gone to be checked out and to rest and recover from what's been an arduous and stressful trek from the Srebrenica area. They look haggard and a little underweight and have horrible stories which we happily record. But they don't look... Well, they don't look starving, and starving refugees is a story of the day. We interview a doctor and film a cupboard full of -of out-of-date drugs. Walking along a hospital corridor, I spot a young blonde woman sitting on a hospital bed. 
who will definitely satisfy my editor's desires. She is truly skinny. But is she a refugee, and is she actually malnourished, or is she suffering from some other illness? We ask our interpreter to check with the doctor. He says yes on the starving count. We're good to go. My story leads the news that night, and thinking about it afterwards, it doesn't really matter whether she's really starving or not, except to her, of course. Her image is a symbol of all nasty stuff going on here. Martin Bell quietly says, well done, as I pass him in the hotel lobby. We go back to Kassiliak and, rounding one of the many tricky bends, come across a British Army armoured personnel carrier stuck in a ditch. Can we give you a tow, we joke? Bugger off, they say. Then it's one more long drive to Tuzla, another refugee story, and my two-week stint is up. We've grown fond of the larder and christened her Laura. She's served us brilliantly. As I'm packing up my kit in the Kisiliak flat, a jeep pulls up and disgorges a senior editorial executive and a senior accountant from London. Suits, both looking apprehensive and uncomfortable. Something's up. They're looking into expenses fiddles, and I later discover that my cameraman's claims when he comes to Bosnia are always five times higher than anyone else's. He goes through far more roadblocks too, charging $100 a time as bribes. As well, there's apparently been a false expenses scam on the apartment rent and a dodgy petrol deal with the garage. That explains the cameraman's odd behaviour. Someone's tipped him off that the game's up. He's fired, as is a young, very junior producer who worked with him on a previous trip and had just gone along innocently with what he thought were accepted and normal practices. He should have been grounded, not fired. They spare the correspondent who was on the fiddle too. That's not fair. Who am I to criticise, you might ask, and you're right to do so. But my crimes are mild by comparison. I meet up with my replacement correspondent at a Croatian roadside cafe in a safe area on the way to Split. Rustic, slow-roasted lamb and a glass of red. I update him on recent events and hand him the keys to Laura the larder. Tell Laura I love her, I say. Take good care of my baby. Sorry, 60s song titles, couldn't resist. I fly home via Rome, where the world is okay again, the sun is shining, and everyone is happy and smiling. I'm Vernon Mann. Thanks for listening. Thank you.